Let's turn in the scriptures to John chapter 16. We're actually going to be studying John 14 through 16, little segments in these chapters. We'll begin in John 14 and end in John 16. Today, again, we're studying the gospel according to John, but we're not forging into any new territory. Lord willing, we'll forge into John 17 next week. But what we're going to do is go back into chapters 14 to 16 and dig a little deeper. One of the things that is true of the scriptures, it is a remarkable quality of the Bible that no matter how many times you go back to it, you can always dig deeper. It's been said that the scriptures are shallow enough for children to play in and deep enough for elephants to drown in like that. I want to give a quick reminder about what is in the gospel according to John and how the chapters that we're studying this morning fit into the book. There are four what I call newspaper biographies at the center of the Bible. It's the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John. The term gospel means good news, which is why I refer to these gospels as newspapers. Each is recounting news, what took place in history, and it is good news, really good news. Each of these gospel accounts recounts Jesus of Nazareth, what happened in the 30 years or so that he was on earth. Each of these gospel accounts portrays Jesus to be God become man. He's the creator become human. Each of them portrays him as a man who lived full of wisdom and without one ounce of sin or selfishness. He continually demonstrated by his wisdom as well as by his works that he had the power to control weather. He had the power to heal the sick. He had the power to raise the dead. And these four Gospels all recount that he died bearing the punishment that sinners deserve, that our rebellion against God deserves, and that three days after dying, he rose again. He walked out of the tomb alive to prove that the payment he made for sin was done. Nothing left to be paid. He could therefore forgive sin. He could conquer death, and in fact, He has the power to recreate the universe, as one person put it, to transfigure it, to make it better than it ever was. John, one of the gospel writers, is stressing these truths from his own eyewitness perspective. He spent the first half of the book, the first 12 chapters, recounting several miracles, what he calls signs that Jesus worked. These are actions that signify, they sign something, they signify that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He's the creator become human, who has the power to forgive sin, to restore life to people who die, and in fact, he has the power to recreate the world to fix the universe's brokenness. And John keeps stressing throughout the first half that the right response to these signs is belief, faith, life conviction, life committal to Jesus. I follow Jesus. I submit my life to him. This is the right response, the only right response. You commit your life to him. Let me say, if you have never committed your life to him, read the first 12 chapters 
Read what one of the eyewitnesses actually witnessed. Listen to his testimony so that you will see why you need to commit your life to Jesus. After chapter 12, then, John shifts. He really slows down his report of history. And rather than focusing on years of Jesus' ministry and what he did in those years, he zeroes in on a 24-hour period. It's the 24-hour period around the crucifixion. Chapters 13 through 19 describe basically a 24-hour period from Passover meal on Thursday night to the crucifixion and burial before sundown on Friday. Those chapters recount a 24-hour period, and at the center of them is what we're looking at today. It's what's been called Jesus' farewell address. It's where he's speaking his last words to his disciples. He's about to die. He's about to leave them. And he's giving them words of counsel and comfort before they go out and try to spread this message of who Jesus is in a very hostile world. So John 14 to 16 is sometimes called Jesus' farewell discourse. And it is what he says right before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, prays, is arrested, tried, and crucified. You say, okay... I get it. We've caught up to where we're at in the Gospel of John. But why aren't we going on to chapter 17? Why are we, after studying chapters 14, 15, and 16 in consecutive weeks, why are we going back through them? It's because I've had a burden to look at one of the major themes in John 14, 15, and 16. That theme is that Jesus mentions God, the Holy Spirit, five times. He mentions God the Spirit five times. I want to read through each of those five mentions of the Spirit. And then I I believe that God would want me to shepherd you with the truth of God the Spirit that you need to realize, Christian, applies to you right now, today. So let's turn to John 14. We're going to actually begin our discussion in John 14, 12. This is right after Jesus, in chapter 13, washed his disciples' feet and commanded them to love one another in a similar way, in a way that's committed, in a way that's very humble, thinking of themselves as each other's servants, and in a way that focuses on cleansing one another, purifying one another, pointing each other to Jesus. He begins chapter 14 and he says, do not be afraid. He says, you know where I'm going, I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to come again, I'm going to return and bring you all to be with me where I am. And as soon as the disciples hear this, that Jesus is going away, they're concerned. But Jesus promises, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
Then Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come. I'm going to return to earth. So in Jesus' first mention of the Spirit in this evening's final words, he promises that the Spirit is going to not just be with them, but be in them. He's going to indwell them. You look at those words, he says, the helper will be in you. And in the context, he's implying that it will actually be through the help, through the strong support of the Spirit, that these disciples will advance the gospel through a hostile world. They'll pray in the power of the Spirit, and they will persevere in love for Jesus. And he adds to this promise just a little bit later in the chapter. If you look at John 14, verse 25. John 14, 25. These things have I spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I'll give you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Here again, Jesus refers to the Spirit as the helper. He's going to do it four times, the helper. He's the helper of those who follow Jesus. And he promises that the helper is going to help his disciples make sense of all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did. He's also going to give the disciples peace in the middle of their suffering. And he continues, he actually deepens this assurance in the next chapter, in chapter 15. He says, he's going to help you in the middle of persecution. Look at chapter 15, verse 23. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. He means not as guilty as they are, having seen what they've seen. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that's written in their law, he's quoting Psalm 69, must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he'll bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. The Spirit is going to testify in the world about Jesus and implied he is going to empower the disciples as they go about as eyewitnesses testifying to what they've seen Jesus say and do. So Jesus assures his disciples that although they're going to face hatred and hostility in this world, that this world does not want, it actually rejects Jesus' authority, Jesus says you're going to have the helper God the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, and he is going to support you as you testify about me in the world. The last two references of the Spirit are located back-to-back at the beginning of John 16. The first one is in verses 5 through 11. We spent some time with it last week. Jesus says, John 16, verse 5, But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? 
What he means is that in all the questioning up to this point, the disciples have not really cared about the location to where he's going and why he's going there. They simply care that he's leaving them. That's all they're fixated on. You're leaving. You're leaving. They're not really concerned about the where and the why. But because, Jesus says, because I've said these things to you that I'm leaving, sorrows filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's actually to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. And you'll no longer see me concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I taught last week that here Jesus promises the disciples that the Holy Spirit is going to help them as they spread the message about Jesus. In fact, the Spirit is going to convict people throughout the world that they are in fact rebels who've refused the authority of Jesus over their lives. And yet, the Spirit's going to say, Jesus, the one you're rejecting is the one you so desperately need. Further, the Spirit is going to convict the world concerning righteousness. That means he's going to convict them that, they are out, that they're actually unrighteous. That their attempts at being righteous and good and religious won't get them anywhere with God. And that they actually need Jesus, the righteous one who died bearing their unrighteousness. Who can, by faith, credit to them his righteousness. And all this is proven by the fact that Jesus ascended to heaven. He is the righteous one. He is the Lord who can give people righteousness, the righteousness that he alone earned. Further, the Spirit is not only going to convict people of sin and righteousness, but of judgment. That unless people submit to Jesus, they will fall under his judgment, his condemnation. And The truth that the Spirit really presses on people is Jesus, by his resurrection, conquered Satan. He truly is Lord. He has the power to judge. The Spirit, in other words, is going to help the disciples carry out their mission. And then Jesus continues in the fifth passage, John 16, verses 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... He'll guide you into all the truth, for he'll not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He'll glorify me, for he'll take what's mine. He'll take all the things concerning me. He'll take my curriculum and speak it to you. All that the Father has is mine. That's why I said that he'll take what's mine and declare it to you. So as J.I. Packer says, I'm going to end with this uh, observation. According to Jesus, the Spirit will spotlight Jesus. He's going to cause these disciples to understand the significance of who Jesus was, what Jesus said, and what Jesus did. It's interesting that John, the man who's writing this report, is actually fulfilling this promise as he writes, right? Right? John is accurately remembering the things that Jesus said and did, and he's reporting them because he understands the significance of them. 
The New Testament, in fact, is proof that these words of Jesus in John 16 have been fulfilled, that the Spirit guided the eyewitnesses to explain who Jesus is, what Jesus did, why it matters for everyone. So those are the five passages in which Jesus, in this final message to his disciples, as they're terrified, as he's about to die, he promises the disciples, that the Spirit is coming. He does so repeatedly. If you boiled down Jesus' message in these five passages to the disciples, I'd put it something like this. If you have submitted your life to God the Son, then you have God the Spirit permanently in you to help you follow Jesus. To help you follow Jesus and carry out the mission Jesus has called you to carry out. If you've submitted your life to God the Son, then you have permanently within you God the Spirit to help you follow Jesus. Now, we've read the scripture. I've summarized the truth. I'm going to park here for just a minute. But I need to tell you that I feel incapable, really, of doing well as a preacher going forward. I'm called to explain to you and helpfully explain to you the scriptures, but I need to be honest with you in saying that when we finish the rest of the message today, basically what you're going to have gotten is a three-year-old's coloring page. The message from this point on is probably going to be a little bit more messy than pretty. I hope you'll still stick it on your refrigerator. (laughs) It's my attempt, but it's pretty messy, and there are a few reasons for that. One of the reasons is because when it comes to personally experiencing the Holy Spirit's power in my life. I am young and inexperienced. I speak to you as someone who wants to know this more, not as someone who's got it mastered. Hardly. Not at all. The second reason I say I almost feel like I'm getting into territory that's just way beyond me is because I've read a lot of people's writing on the Spirit from multiple perspectives, and I know that there are so many Christians and Christian pastors and Christian scholars who struggle to preach on the Spirit. It's because when it comes to the truth of God the Holy Spirit, there's just so much we don't understand. It's why pastors and scholars often refer to the Spirit as mysterious, elusive, or hidden. Now, let me explain just a little bit of the challenge, of the difficulty that I'm describing, okay? First, I would say, the Holy Spirit, according to the scriptures, is clearly a person, right? Jesus refers to him as a person, Jesus sends the Spirit into the world, just like the Father sent him into the world. The Spirit interacts with people 
as a person interacts with people, he comes to them, he helps them, he guides them, he speaks to them, he teaches them, he reminds them, he declares things to them, he testifies to them, he convicts them. That is a person interacting with other people, right? The Spirit clearly is a person. He's not some impersonal force, right? He's a person. And yet, the Spirit is a person like no other. He's a spirit. He's not a body. In fact, he's coexistent with two other people, two other persons. He's coexistent with the Father and the Son, and the three of them have been forever one in their being or in their subsistence. According to the passage we just read, the Spirit has forever proceeded from the Father. That's the actual language Jesus uses. Jesus has been forever begotten of the Father. The Spirit has forever proceeded from the Father. And the Spirit has been forever submissive to the Son, and he has forever sought to glorify the Son. Now, I can say everything I've just said, but I can't go about any farther in explaining it. You see the challenge. There are certain things we know, and we know them. We we know them truly based on the word of Jesus. I'd like to explain them further, but I can't. I want to approach it from another angle. God the Spirit is the power behind creation. This has been one of the major emphases in the Gospel according to John. From the first chapter in the Gospel according to John, I'm reading John, 30, uh, John 1, 32 and 33, the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, signifying that it was the Spirit who was empowering everything Jesus did. So when Jesus wanted to turn the water into wine... The Spirit was the one who made it happen. And when Jesus wanted to split the loaves so that it fed thousands of people, it was the Spirit who was creating the bread and multiplying the fish. It was the power of the Spirit who was working through all of the signs that Jesus did. It's interesting that in John 1, I pointed this out months ago, but in John 1, the Spirit is said to be hovering like a dove over Jesus. And that is intentionally echoing the very first words of the Bible in Genesis 1-2, where the Spirit of God, I'm quoting Genesis 1-2, was hovering over the watery surface, ready to powerfully create whatever the voice of God spoke. The Spirit of God was ready to powerfully enact it. So Jesus is the creator become human. And throughout John, he is powerfully demonstrating by all these signs that he can fix what's broken and he can recreate the world. All by the power of the Spirit. In John chapter 3, 
Jesus is speaking to a very religious man named Nicodemus. And he says, the spirit has to cause people to be born again, born anew. And he is referring to the spirit's power to create, to create people, to make them new, totally new, to give them new hearts that are not resisting Jesus, but submitting to Jesus. And yet this time in John 3, he doesn't liken Jesus to uh, uh, a bird, a, a mighty bird that's ready, you know, swooping over the waters, ready to put things into action. In John chapter 3, he refers to him like a powerful wind that is completely unpredictable and uncontrollable. He will go where he wills. And you can't direct it, you can't predict it, but you can see its effects. So Jesus stresses that the Holy Spirit is the power behind creation. Getting more specific, he's the power behind the old creation and the power behind the new creation. He is the power behind the oxygen, behind the grass. He's the power behind every star and every cell. He is the power behind creation and he is the power behind every person who submits their lives to Jesus who will one day be transfigured, raised, glorified, and forever inherit the kingdom. He's the author of the old creation, the power behind it. And he's the power behind the new creation. But that brings up a problem, doesn't it? Try explaining that. This is awesome. This is mysterious. When God said, let there be light, the spirit who was hovering over creation caused there to be light. Explain how. What was the process? How did the spirit actually create life, light out of nothing? When God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, the Spirit caused it to be so. It was so, Genesis says. Explain how he did it. Explain how he made the seeds. Did you see his production factory? What did it look like? When God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, the Spirit caused the sun, moon, and stars to exist. We can't fathom that kind of power. Let alone explain how it happened. In a similar way now, coming back to John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus says, the Helper is going to be with you permanently. He's going to be in you. And he is going to help you every single day follow Jesus and carry out Jesus' mission in this world. We know based on the word of Jesus, it is happening. 
We know from history it has been happening. And yet, I can't stand up here and say, how? I don't physically feel the Spirit's support. I can't. He's a spirit. He's not a physical body. And there is no spiritual anemometer. That's a tool that's used to measure the wind. There's no spiritual anemometer that we can put on ourselves and say, yep, the Spirit's working in me today. And yet... I look at the last 25 years of my life and I say the only reason I'm still following Jesus today is not because of me. I would have gotten off the path time after time after time. There's some incredible power at work. It's there. I can't really explain how, but he's there. If you've submitted your life to God the Son then you have God the Spirit permanently in you to help you follow Jesus. You must be encouraged by Jesus' assurance this morning, even though you can't explain it. In this final council, Jesus refers to the Spirit four times as the helper. That term, helper, in Greek it's the term parakletos or paraclete it's been translated like 10 different ways in history 10 different ways in English it's been translated as the counselor will come or the advocate will come or the comforter will come the strengthener will come I like that term he's the one who helps who supports who strengthens us in following Jesus and carrying out mission in the world we're not alone we have a helper And in my view, if you step back from this this farewell words of counsel, there are three major ways in which the Spirit helps us. The first way is he helps us understand truth about Jesus. Not only does Jesus refer to him as the helper, but a few times, three times in fact, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Truth. And that name stresses that the Spirit's mission is to reveal Jesus, who is the truth, in order to give life to people. The way the Spirit gives life to people is by revealing the truth about Jesus. For this first generation of disciples, the Spirit led them to accurately remember the truth about Jesus to accurately process it and understand it and to accurately witness to it throughout the world. Again, the New Testament is proof that the spirit of truth led the apostles into the truth about Jesus. But the spirit of truth continues this ministry in us, in further subsequent generations of disciples. He doesn't help us remember our eyewitness experience. Some of these promises pertain to that first generation who actually witnessed Jesus. We don't have eyewitness experience like the first generation, but the Spirit still helps us understand the significance of the truth about Jesus in what the apostles originally wrote. This is something, a work, an activity of the Holy Spirit that's referred to in other places of the Scripture as illumination or enlightenment. It's like the Holy Spirit 
as we're reading Scripture, as someone is explaining the Scripture, turns the light bulb on, and we have a light bulb moment, and we not only say, I understand it, but we say, it's for me. I need that. He turns the light on to the personal significance of the truth about Jesus. He convinces us personally that that testimony is true, and he convicts us that we desperately need it. The Spirit continues this powerful work again. He continues it today. Now again, I need to say, how he does this is mysterious. I've had conversations with people in which I think they've gotten it. And then they walk out and they go on cohabiting with their boyfriend or girlfriend. I thought his word and his authority mattered. Talk about it with someone else when they walk out of the coffee shop it's like I don't think they heard anything I said and two weeks later I get a text I can't get away from the truth you pointed me to in the scripture God has convicted me I've apologized to the people I need to apologize to and shocking it's not at all what I expected the seed bears fruit incredible it certainly happens it powerfully happens but i can't predict it i can't manipulate it with techniques i can't explain to you how the spirit produced the truth that the apostles wrote inspiration but he did it this book proves it I can't explain to you how the Spirit turns the light on in people's souls, but he does it. Our congregation is proof of it. He does it. Contrary to all of our expectations. So many of us have testimonies that say, like, I was going my way. I wanted nothing to do with God. And God stopped me. He turned on the significance of truth in our lives. He does it. It's just impossible to predict or to control Secondly, the Spirit helps disciples persevere in love for Jesus and in obedience to him. The Spirit helps disciples persevere in love for Jesus. It's remarkable that in these chapters, the disciples are so consumed with this worry. You're leaving us. In reality, their greatest concern should have been that they were just about ready to leave and abandon him. And Jesus keeps assuring them that the helper is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to support you so that you keep loving and obeying me. The spirit who loves Jesus is going to help followers of Jesus keep loving Jesus. And this is true. And this is, again, nearly impossible to explain how he does it. It's easier to illustrate. I think John Bunyan does it well in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim, after he becomes a Christian, walks into the interpreter's house and he sees a fireplace. There's a fire in the fireplace 
And there's a man standing in front of the fireplace pouring water on the fire. And yet the pilgrim's standing there in the house and he sees that the fire's not going out. He says, what in the world's going on? An interpreter says, basically, I'm glad you asked. Come here, let me show you what's going on. And he takes him around to the next room. And the pilgrim learns that it's a two-sided fireplace. And on the other side of the fireplace is another man who's pouring oil into the fire constantly. An interpreter says, let me tell you what this means. When you walked into the room and saw the fire in the fireplace, he said, that's your love for the Lord Jesus. And that man who's there pouring water on it, that's the devil. He's trying to use trials and doubts to douse the flame of your love for Jesus. But hidden from view, if you come around to the next room, that's the Holy Spirit. And he's there pouring the oil onto that fire of your love for Jesus so that it will not go out. It's hidden. It's elusive. It's mysterious. But it's true. It's powerful. Third, the Spirit helps disciples experience peace in trials and persecutions. Jesus also assured his disciples that the helper would help with peace, that the Spirit would comfort their hearts with joy and peace that's rooted in Jesus' victory. As we live for Jesus, we tell other people about him, we are going to experience trials, persecutions, and yet the Spirit is going to keep on reminding us that Jesus is Lord, that he loves us, that he did rise again from the dead, and that he will return to earth and remake it just as he's promised. He's going to reign as King of Kings. And somehow, in all of our trials, horrible as they are, there, there somehow is peace that's not dependent on our circumstances, but is rooted in the truth about Jesus that the Spirit powerfully brings back to us. If you boil down these ways that the Spirit helps us into one, you would simply say that the Spirit glorifies Jesus. Or as J.I. Packer says, the Spirit spotlights Jesus. God the Spirit exalts God the Son. J.I. Packer put it like this in his book, Walking or Keeping in Step with the Spirit. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over on Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. But always, look at him, see him. See his glory, get to know him, hear his word, go to him, have life, get to know him, taste his gift of joy and peace. God the Spirit is spotlighting God the Son. If you're in a gathering of disciples that focuses a lot on the Spirit, but only a little on what the Bible says about Jesus, the spotlight's not turned on. 
And if you're in a gathering of disciples that loves Jesus and loves hearing truth about Jesus, who he is, what he said, his authority, his humility, if you're in a congregation that loves Jesus, the Spirit may hardly be mentioned, but he is powerfully shining the light. I actually want to conclude our gathering this morning singing praise to God the Spirit for shining the spotlight on God the Son, helping us understand Jesus, convincing us of our need of him, and giving us comfort in our trials, fueling our love continually. Now let me just give a word of coaching, worship coaching, okay? This is an old hymn. We don't have many good doctrinal hymns on the Spirit. This is one of them. We sing it to an old German tune. It's often paired with the words, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. But you're going to get to know it pretty well. You can sing if you want. You can just listen and soak in the truth. But whether you sing today or not, I hope maybe Tuesday night, when you're under a lot of stress, you pull out your bulletin and you start praying these words before you go to sleep. Let's stand and sing, Eternal Spirit Praise We Bring.